welcome to Choose Wisely. I'm Caroline Nelson, your nerdy regenerative rancher friend, and I have been thinking about factory farming nonstop all week. Now, I just want to say right here at the top that the term factory farming is one I don't like, and I actually don't ever use it in my real actual life. I find that term to be so broad as to be almost meaningless, and I don't think it accurately describes most of the actual farming and ranching done in this country. We still have 97% family-owned farms here in the U.S. I know that's very surprising to hear if you haven't heard that before, but via the USDA, baby. (laughs) So for that reason and many others, I don't find the term factory farming to be that helpful. But I am going to use it today a lot because it's a shorthand for the type of consolidation and corporatization and factoryizing that has happened to many modes and aspects of food production in the last 75 years, and particularly in certain segments. So really, when we look at inputs, so chemical, seed, equipment, who sells us those things, how they do it, and then sort of the end phases of production. So often the actual processing itself, like the food getting to the plate, the slaughter of the beef, the contracting of the milk, those phases, kind of inputs and outputs have become very factoryized. Another reason I don't like the term factory farming is that it implies kind of all industries in farming are doing things in a certain way. And what we actually have is a wide range of variation between food sectors. Some, like hog and chicken and egg production, are highly, highly factoryized. And I keep using that word. It's not a real word, but (laughs) there's a lot about crop production too that is the same kind of assembly line style. However, Lots of our crops, particularly vegetables, are still picked by hand, and we do still have a lot of small-scale family farms. Like in the beef sector, for example, the average herd size is only 100. So all of these different food sectors kind of exist on a spectrum of like more factory-ish to least factory-ish, and even within them, there's a ton of variation. So kind of a mega dairy is going to look a lot different from you know, a small kind of more traditional style dairy. Okay. I have given you so many caveats already. We haven't even started. (laughs) I've spent all this time telling you how I hate the word factory farming, and I'm now going to use it so much because I have been thinking about it, Googling about it, researching about it nonstop. And what got me started is my friend, Bethany Cantwell of Aurora Blue Farm. She texted me the other day with something really interesting. Will you share kind of like why you texted me and what you found? Yeah, my aunt, I guess I should back up and say that I grew up on a farm and my dad grew up on a farm and my grandfather had a farm. And so it just goes as far back as like I could find historical genealogical records. Like everybody's been a farmer, right? Well, my aunt had sent me a newspaper article from 1958 and it's like from Wilmington, Ohio, which is like where I went to college at. It's not, it sits in Southwest Ohio too. And it was a newspaper article that had 
Um, my grandpa, and at the time my dad was a year old. So he's like in this photograph and she thought, you know, that it would be nice for me to have this, you know, and it was all about my grandpa raising pigs in 1958 and how he was doing. But literally on the flip side of this newspaper, because I'm like, let me read all the different articles. What's going on in 1958? On the back side of the newspaper, it says, this farm is a factory. And I have never seen any like newspaper. I'm sure they exist. I'm just mean, I have not Mm -hmm. come across any of the old ag papers, old ag books that are just like, this is this farm is a factory. So yes. of course I had to keep reading it. And as I read through it, I thought immediately of you and said, Caroline's gonna wanna read this. <laughs> and you were so right. This is the first time that I've ever heard the word factory farm or read it where it's a positive thing. Is it, is that yeah, your experience too? Where, yeah. Yes. That was so like that was so interesting to me. And I have like kind of mixed feelings about the term factory farm now, and we can get into that in a little bit. But the cool thing about this article is just seeing it as this exciting thing where they're saying, oh my gosh, there's this new way of farming. Like this farm is a factory. Literally, that's the title. You actually read me some of the like quotes and different things that you read in the article over like text voice memos. So what was some of the stuff that stood out to you about like this farm is a factory? Well, Given the fact that this is 1958 and factory farming wasn't something that I'm, so that's why I'm like immediately want to read this because I'm thinking factory Mm -hmm. farms in 1958. So a little bit of background on this article is that the farm that they're referring to is outlocated in Blanchester, Ohio, which is where I grew up. And it's on a 500 acre farm, which Mm -hmm. out there is a large piece of land. Most farms Mm -hmm. like the ones that my dad grew up on, my grandpa had were a hundred acres. That's about what's standard out there. The farm was owned by Stanley Steinharder, and he was a retired wool purchaser and manufacturer, purchased this 500-acre farm in 1950, and he had never farmed before. So knowing the area, I'm like, no one I know has a 500-acre farm. Well, it was because he purchased it, and he lived in Cincinnati, and he would commute every Wednesday to his, quote, factory farm. So what stood out to me was... Like, I think when you and I talked about this, the tone of it is more of mm-hmm. a, this is such a novel, new. it's like a new thing. Yeah. The whole barn was concrete and it cost him $80,000 in 1950s wow. to build it. That's so which much money. Converting that now is like around $830,000. So this uh, is like a lot of money in this operation from somebody that has zero experience in animal husbandry, which is what he says in the article. Can I read the first paragraph of the article? Yes, go for it. It says, ever see a pig factory? From a distance, it looks like a farm, but a close look shows an operation unlike any normal farm. Market hogs finished in little over four months after farrowing, which is after birth, are being turned out daily on the quote-unquote assembly line at Colonial Acre Farm near Blanchester. I want to read you something. Two kinds of farms are battling for supremacy in this period of rapid economic change, the factory farm and the family farm. The factory farm's objective is profit for the owners. The family farm's objective is subsistence for the family. What year do you think that was written? Because it could have been this year, could have been last year, but actually that is from 1931 from an article called The Factory Farm. Over, well, almost 100 years ago. 
And I'm like, wow, that's interesting. They kind of nailed it. (laughs) They kind of put their finger on it, didn't they? (laughs) Today's episode has me feeling nervous. The topic of factory farming is a monster. And like the closer you get into it, the more tentacles you find into other topics. I've done more research for this episode than any others prior. This really has consumed my life. The title of this episode alone, it can make people mad within agriculture, outside of agriculture. But here's the deal. If you're listening, you've already passed the first test. (laughs) You're here. We're alone now with people who are open to nuance and and learning. So, okay, I'm excited to dive in. I'm going to push past the fear of upsetting people and remember that facts are friendly and that we can't change a food system that we don't understand, which, by the way, is what I want on my headstone. (laughs) So in that spirit, in this episode, I am going to make my very best argument for factory farming in good faith with the best data I can find and the most nuance I can muster. And then in the next episode, I'm going to tear it all down. It's kind of boring to start with definitions, but like I always say, everything important is boring. So therefore, the definition of factory farming, aka industrialized farming, intensive farming, or sometimes called CAFOs, confined animal feeding operations, The definition is a type of animal agriculture where the goal is to maximize profits while minimizing expenses. The hallmarks are indoor confinement, high level of efficiency, control over every part of the animal's life, so like what they eat, their health, reproduction, and this is important, their feed being brought to them and their manure and urine being hauled out. This last bit is almost the most helpful thing to me as a definition. I mean, certainly there's times we do manure management here. We have the sheep in corrals at night. So there is some manure management and we do sometimes bring the feed to them. But primarily, if you looked at how we raise our livestock, primarily they go out in search of their own food. You know, they are fertilizing pastures with their manure. We are not having to truck it out and truck food into them most of the time. And if you think of a more CAFO or factory farm model, the animal is stationary and the food is being brought into them and then their waste is being hauled out. So that's the definition that you get if you look this up on the internet. But I actually think there's a better definition. I'm going to take a stab at it. Factory farms is farming done in a linear way as part of a linear economy and Pretty much most of the industrialized modern world operates on a linear economy today, characterized by take, make, consume, dispose. So like cell phones, we take natural resources, we extract and mine them, we process them, manufacture this item, use them for a while, throw them away, get a new one. And a linear economy is opposed to a circular economy, where basically you're wanting to keep goods and materials in circulation for as long as possible. And I know my farmer friends right now are screaming at me saying farming is still a good example of a circular economy, to which I say, yes, kind of, and lots of farms do still employ circular economy tactics to be more sustainable and save money. I think agriculture is like one of the main industries that still does this. Examples would be dairies harvesting manure to put into methane digesters to get energy to then power the dairy. 
or farmers that send their spoiled or imperfect produce to be eaten by animals. Like, yes, yes, yes. This happens often in agriculture to this day on farms of all sizes, including very large ones. And actually, sometimes the larger ones are the best at recycling. And yet, compared to farming 100 years ago, we have a much more linear style of agriculture than we used to. And that applies both to animal and to crop farming. And that's kind of why I was actually surprised to read that factory farming kind of as a definition is specific to animal agriculture. And actually, historically, that's not how the term was used. I got an overpriced subscription to newspapers.com in a moment of feverish, unhinged midnight research. And I found the earliest reference in 1922 to the term factory farming. This was an article actually talking about wheat farms. They were some of the first farms to employ this linear, consolidated type of model. And these quote-unquote farm factories, they were also called corporate farms or mechanized farms. Because remember, this is like right around the invention of the tractor and mechanization for the first time. They were there to solve the farm problem. And the farm problem was this. Throughout the early 20th century, small family farms, which was the norm, were not financially keeping up with the rest of the country. They were barely scratching out a profit, barely surviving. And in response to this farm problem, during the rise of industrialization and technological advances, this new type of farmer emerged. Actually, he didn't call himself a farmer. I'm using the pronoun he because they were all he's. He called himself an agriculturalist or a businessman, and he consolidated land and resources into a so-called corporate farm. Some of these guys were bankers. Some of them were in real estate. Some did come from within farming, but primarily, as far as I could find in these old historical articles, these new corporate farms were started by folks outside agriculture. And it makes sense, right? They were the only ones that had the money to do it. And they were like, hey, we're going to bring this amazing technological boom and industrialized boom we're seeing in every other industry. We are going to revolutionize farming and solve this farm problem. I saw a wheat farm, this was like back in the 1930s, that was 70,000 acres. (laughs) So yeah, I mean, we think today we're the only ones that have this type of consolidation, but that is not the case. This this goes back to the 30s even. And it's so interesting to read these articles because even then, almost 100 years ago, they were kind of equal parts excited about the potential of factory farming to solve a lot of the problems that they were having in the food space. But they were also worried and fearful and had questions like, what happens to our rural communities and our, and our culture? Like, what happens when we corporatize and mechanize food production? And their fears were warranted. This mechanization, in part, contributed to the flippin' dust bowl. It also contributed to the collapse of commodity prices. I'm not actually sure how we could have such widespread devastation and hunger and also this glut of food at the same time but we did. And it got so bad that in 1933, the government killed over 6 million hogs and plowed under and burned over 10 million acres of crops. Actually, I think the 10 million number is just for cotton. So there were tons more acres of other crops burned and buried in an effort to raise commodity prices for farmers. 
They were literally shooting hogs and cattle and burying them in pits while citizens in this country went hungry and starved. What a policy. If you want to learn more about this, Google Agricultural Adjustment Act of 1933, but you need to look deeper than the Wikipedia page because they don't get into the animal slaughters there, which I always think is interesting. Okay, so that was the farm problem. And I tell you all this because we love to look at history with rose-colored glasses and imagine, like, if we just got rid of all the factory farming, we could go back to small farms and it would work great, just like it used to. (laughs) It wasn't working that great then. I'm not saying factory farming was the only solution, but I'm saying there was a problem over 100 years ago, even with how we produced food. So yes, this kind of industrialization was happening in crop farming, and then it was also happening in animal agriculture at the same time. The first CAFO confined chicken experiments started in the 20s when Purdue was founded. Tyson followed in 1935, so it really kind of started with poultry. Hogs came next. They were more easily adapted to this new assembly line style of raising animals, same way that birds adapted to it. Dairy, kind of to a lesser extent, also then followed later on, and then to an even lesser extent, beef cattle. So yes, everyone's like, but feedlots, but feedlots. Yes, but they really don't compare to the kind of indoor, complete confinement life cycle that a hog or a chicken goes through. Feedlots are the very end stage of production for beef cattle. Primarily, they are still raised on pasture. So That's kind of what happened throughout the 1900s. And during that time, there was a true farming and food revolution. I started to notice something in my feverish Googling. I was seeing so many graphs and they all hinged right around the year 1950. So like before or after 1950, whatever I was looking up either ballooned or crashed with the rise of factory farming. Number of family farms after 1950 crashed. Percent of population in farming after 1950 crashed. Use of synthetic fertilizer, antibiotics, pesticides, herbicides after 1950 ballooned. Price of commodities and percent of food budget crashed. Consumption of processed food ballooned. Global population exploded. Productivity of farms way, way up. So it's like, you don't even have to know anything about history and what was happening at the time. You can just look at the charts and be like, interesting, something really changed right around the middle of the 1900s. It really wasn't just that farmers were raising more chickens or dairy cows or farming more wheat. It's not just a quantity thing. The style of farming fundamentally changed from this circular economy to a linear one. And Johns Hopkins has this really great source called a food system primer. It's in the show notes and I'm going to quote them. In the early 1900s, more than half of Americans were either farmers or lived in rural communities. Most U.S. farms were diversified. They produced a variety of crops and animal species together on the same farm in complementary ways. Farmers were skilled in a wide range of trades and had autonomy over how to manage their crops and animals. And animals were typically raised with access to the outdoors. So essentially, we had a system where farms were largely self-sustaining. And I'm not saying it was done perfectly and that it wasn't ever this extractive linear system. I haven't seen data on that, but it was done with quite a bit of circularity. The farmer grew the wheat to feed the pigs whose manure fertilized the field. Like, you get it. Back then... The average farmers produced at least five different 
crops from each farm. Today, the average farmer produces one crop. This huge shift, this huge change is called an agricultural revolution. It's actually the third agricultural revolution, and I think the biggest one. Some even say that farming has changed more in the last 75 years than it did in the prior 10,000. Reading all of these articles from the early 1900s that were like, I wonder what will happen when farming is a factory. (laughs) To me, reading them was like that moment in a horror movie when the teenagers are like wandering through a haunted house and they're like, I wonder what's behind that door. (laughs) You're just screaming at the TV, don't open the door, don't industrialize the farming. (laughs) So like my bias is clear, but When I think with my head and not just my heart and my feelings, an honest question rises up. Did we really have a choice? Earl Butts, the infamous Secretary of Agriculture in the 70s, told farmers to get big or get out. And at first I was like, what an ominous, threatening thing to say. But now I see it in another way. I mean, he really meant it as like earnest advice. Like this is happening to every single industry in every developed nation. And if you want to survive, you got to change your ways. You got to get big. So this was the 60s and 70s, and it was literally a farming revolution. This is called the Green Revolution, the rise of not just mechanization and kind of this new style of farming, but also the rise of genetic engineering in crops and the chemicals to go with them. And this green revolution is credited with saving a billion people from starvation. Wait, what? (laughs) The type of farming people say is killing us and the planet is responsible for saving a billion people? Uh, yeah. I want to quickly tell you about Little Creek. That's us my husband and my ranch, and we raise all-natural, pasture-raised beef and lamb. Our beef is humanely and lovingly raised. We're calving right now, so I actually get to be super up close with the whole herd. We calve on pasture. Our cows are always on grass, drinking from streams. They live an awesome life. And the calves that are born now, we raise them for over two years before they get harvested at a small craft USDA-inspected butchery And then we get to deliver and ship this amazing high country Montana beef to all our customers. Our beef is dry aged at least two weeks, which is this premium steakhouse thing that adds flavor and tenderness. It's kind of like how fancy cheese is aged and fancy wine. We not only do free local delivery in the greater Bozeman, Montana area, but we also ship nationwide to the whole U.S., the whole contiguous U.S., I should say, every Monday. Yours truly is custom packing all your boxes with recyclable shipping materials and dry ice to keep contents cold in transit. Right now, for a limited time, our beef subscriptions are open. We only open them a few times a year because we are growing slowly and we are limited in how many folks we can add to Farm Club, but they're open right now. Pick your box size, pick your order frequency, and pause, skip, or cancel anytime. It's so easy and flexible. Visit littlecreekmontana.com to shop, find Farm Club in the drop-down tab, and you'll see the beef subscription options, and use code WISELY, all caps, that's WISELY, W-I-S-E-L-Y, for 10% off your first subscription order.
So the global population was exploding. Multiple countries were facing famines. And the question became, how would we grow more food and fast. This man named Norman Borlaug started messing around with wheat varieties. Wheat at the time had this tall stem, and if you bred that wheat to have more grains on it, the plant would just tip over and you couldn't harvest it. Borlaug was able to breed this shorter, stockier wheat with a stronger stem that could carry more grain. And this type of genetic engineering of plants, this is different than GMOs, we'll have to talk about that another time, but genetic engineering, where you're kind of selectively breeding plants, was simultaneously happening with rice and other commodities. Think of it as an arms race. It was happening in the food system all over the world. The only hitch was that these new genetic varieties depended on these other new inputs, such as synthetic fertilizers, and they needed a lot of water. But the thinking at the time was, these were problems that could be solved later because the important thing was we were facing a food emergency right now. And Norman Borlaug was actually later given the Nobel Peace Prize for his role in preventing a billion deaths from starvation. And here we have the first really freaking big point for factory farming. We have a lot of people to feed. We live in a globalized world full of specialization, imports, and exports. And if factory farming went away tomorrow, we would, at least in the short term, have widespread, devastating famine, without a doubt. During the Green Revolution, farming increased prodigiously in productivity. So the average U.S. farm today is almost three times as productive as the average farm in 1950 while using the same amount of land. I'm going to say that again. We are three times as productive today while using the same amount of land. So there's this kind of idea that farmland is just sprawling and increasing and we're cutting down every tree in sight. And that is not the case. And actually, if you scroll in really close on the data, we're actually using a little bit less land to produce three times as much food than we were 75 years ago. So this is point two, big point two for factory farming. It takes way less land than this kind of diversified, conventional, by conventional I mean old school, way of farming. And it also uses way less of certain resources like labor. We feed so many flippin' people with only 1.5% of the population in food production. And if you really hate factory farming, ask yourself really and truly, do you want to become a farmer? And does like half of everyone you know also want to become a farmer? Like I'm kind of being I'm exaggerated and make a point, but you know what I mean? Like if we're going to go back to this small, small farm model, if we did that tomorrow, we need a ton more people producing food because we just can't get the same quantity, at least in the short term, off the same amount of land as we can with this more intensive model. So yeah, not only are we raising more food with way fewer people than ever before, but we're also getting more productive every year. And this is kind of point three for factory farming. Yes, a lot of that productivity does rely in part on these chemical inputs like fertilizer, but not all. So just selective breeding and just sort of farmers being smart and adaptive is doing a lot of that. Dairy cattle today are producing 2.5 times as much milk as they were 50 years ago, and that's all through selective breeding. Same with beef cattle. Today, they're yielding 25% more beef. We actually have less cattle, like way less cattle than we used to have here in the U.S., and we're producing way more beef. 
this trend is widespread throughout agriculture. So corn, wheat, soy, yields per acre are steadily going up, and there's no reason to believe this trend will slow down. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, yeah, 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 okay, we're producing so much more per acre than we used to, but we're robbing the soil of every last available nutrient, and it's going to kill us all. So this part of the episode is called, Things Are Not Actually As Bad As You Think They Are. I'm someone who's obsessed (laughs) with our current food system and its problems, and yet what I have found time and time again is that these problems we hear so loudly shouted from every media source, when you dig into them, it's just not as bad as everyone says. So here's an example. Here's a claim. We only have 50 harvests left. So the UN famously said that. And there's different estimates. We only have 30 harvests left. We only have 60 harvests left. We only have 100 harvests left. But I'm here with some good news. That claim has been repeatedly and reputably debunked. Our world and data uh, has a great graph on this showing how only 16% of our soils are estimated to have a lifespan of less than 100 years. Like that's not great, but only 16% of them. Others are eroding way more slowly and have a lifespan greater than 1,000 years and a third of them have a lifespan over 5,000 years. Moreover, it's not like a mystery what we need to do to protect and preserve our soil. So th- that 16% of soils that have this shorter lifespan, like tomorrow and probably today, they're doing stuff to address that. There's tools like cover cropping, minimizing tillage. I mean, these are already in use. They're also on the upswing widely. And I can also tell you this as someone who loves to regenerate soil. There is a lot you can do. Like soil is very resilient. And in a short number of years, even without inputs, you can really bring it back to life. It doesn't take that long. So I'm just, I'm very optimistic about our soils. Claim number two about factory farming. It's producing all this food, sure, but it's poison. The food is toxic. First, I want to say that worrying about things like pesticides is valid and very much preferable to going hungry. Factory farming has brought not just consistency of food to the industrialized world, but also quantity. And it does so regardless of season. We have in the modern world, vast, vast quantities of food and food waste, but that's another topic. And it's a huge privilege to quibble with this. So another point for factory farming, I don't even know how many points we're on now, quantity. And also here's another one, price. The food that is produced today is way cheaper than it used to be. Americans are still, inflation included, spending less than half of what we were on food 100 years ago as a percentage of household expenses. So like if we went to the small farm model tomorrow, our food is going to get a lot more expensive. Do we want that? But back to the question at hand, is our food poisoned? No. No and. (laughs) Like, yes, there are pesticide residues on both conventional and organic foods. Don't believe me? Look it up. That's another topic. And yes, some minute nutritional differences have been found between organic and conventional, but we are talking about such small differences, such small amounts, such low doses of this chemical It's the kind of thing where you would have to eat like a thousand apples a day to reach the dose where you'd get sick from the amount of trace pesticides that are on an apple. But like, it doesn't even make sense because you die of eating too many apples (laughs) before you got sick from the residue. Like, don't mistake me. I'm not a chemical girl. (laughs) I'm not shilling for Bayer and 
Monsanto over here. Like I'm raising natural meat. Like this is what I love. This is what I believe in. Like clearly that's my preference. But I think it's very irresponsible for regenerative folks like me and the organic diehards to fear monger about our foods when we just don't have the data to support it. And it doesn't. If that changes, I sure will let you know. I'll be the first to tell you. But overall, what it appears is that while there are kind of additives and these low levels of residues in and on the food, we have a very safe food supply overall. Not to say, again, I'm giving you so many caveats. I just hear people screaming right now at me. But Yes, we have like listeria outbreaks on lettuce and stuff. But the thing about volume and consistency, we also get predictability and quality control. Like my friends in the dairy sector have the most unreal high levels of quality control. Every single batch of milk is tested. If the tank comes back with any residues or anything they're not supposed to have in it, the entire tank is dumped. And I think the farmer is actually responsible for paying for that dumped tank. It's like devastating. So anyway, back to my main point. This modern factory farming model not only gives us abundant, but overall tremendously safe food. But isn't it killing the planet? Claim number three, factory farming is the leading cause of GHG, greenhouse gas, emissions. Here we are. We've reached the hill that I love to die on. This is my favorite hill. So whatever you think global agricultural emissions are right now, like as a percentage, I'm just going to tell you right now, it's less. It's less than that. We hear about ag all the time. It's on everyone's lips regarding climate change and how we need to curb emissions. And yes, again, I believe in this. Like I'm so passionate about it. I'm out here like rotational grazing and obsessed with carbon sequestration. Like, yes, I believe that ag can and should curb emissions, but (laughs) global agricultural emissions are estimated at 18.4% by industry. And that includes deforestation and things like crop burning, like none of which is like a necessary part of agriculture, although burning can be good. Again, another conversation, another conversation. There are tons of different estimates out there, and that has to do with there's like different greenhouse gases. But overall, the best data that we have right now says that ag is responsible for somewhere between 15 and 20 percent of global emissions by industry. Do you want to know where the rest of the emissions come from? Fossil fuels, our friends, British Petroleum. Almost 75% of global emissions trace back to fossil fuels. And also that number, I'm just going to call it right now, um, that number is due to go up because we have been relying on self-reporting from oil and gas companies and different nations like Dubai, Saudi Arabia, like places where a lot of oil and gas is produced. We've been relying on self-reporting to put this data together. And for the very first time now, we've got satellites that can actually track methane emissions. And so far, the very early data says that the fossil fuel industry has been underreporting by quote unquote orders of magnitude. So we'll follow up on that. I have so many thoughts, but basically my theory is that right now, Fossil fuel emissions are 75% by industry, but I think it's going to go up and I think ag's going to go down as we start incorporating this new data. There's like a lag, you know, between the actual data collection and when they publish these new reports. Anyway, to me, all of this begs the question, what is a reasonable amount of greenhouse gas emissions for agriculture to feed the entire world? Like I'm not saying 
we can't and shouldn't get it lower. Again, this is what I'm into. And actually, I think agriculture is the only industry, to my knowledge, that actually could be truly carbon neutral. But like, if we're at 18% now, what actually is a fair number of emissions to feed the whole world? And also, factory farming is a lot of things, but it's efficient. And efficiency, like I always say, can be very much part of sustainability. And if factory farming disappeared tomorrow and we were raising all our food on tiny farms, I'm not convinced emissions would go down at least right away. I think long-term, this small-scale diversified farming is way more easily made to be carbon neutral. However, in the short term, it would take a lot more resources to do so, and emissions might even go up. I truly can't wait to do an emissions episode with you guys. I want to talk about methane and GHG star. So flipping bad. But this is another point for factory farming. Even with our current food system, with all its criticisms, we are still emitting over three times less than the fossil fuel industry. And we're producing something that everybody needs every single day to survive. Like we don't need natural gas. I mean, we can, you know what I mean? You can quibble, but like we can't eat petroleum. Here's another point for factory farming. The global population is expected to peak around 2075 with 11 billion people. And if that happens, we have to grow more food in the next 50 years than we have in the previous 10,000 years. And in order to actually do that, we might even need to farm more intensively. Like, this is already happening. People are already starting to stress about this. Like, we're already getting some robotics and AI into farming. And I don't know what the future looks like, but if I had a magic wand, I would not disappear every intensive hog farm tomorrow for this reason alone. Humanity is going to need calories. We already have a lot of hunger right now. Like, yes, I don't believe in it so much that I'm going to farm any different. Like, I'm going to be over here doing slow ranching and regenerative stuff forever. Like, to me, it's this or a different career. Personally, this is the only way I want to do it. But like, let's not be naive. And here's my last and final point for factory farming. And this is the toughest one for me. Here's the claim. Animals in confinement are suffering horribly and their lives are inhumane. And here's what I'm going to say about that. And next episode, I have a lot more thoughts. But big does not always mean bad. Like we have this idea that big farms are bad and they're just like whipping their animals for fun. Like And then small farms, it's like old McDonald and like they're like petting calves and like all this stuff. That just is a total myth. Like farm size is not correlated to quality of life. It's just not. Um, And sometimes these larger farms, like let's use mega dairies as, as an example, like they can have a better quality of life there sometimes because there are vets on call. Like there's even staff there to catch any issues. Like, yes profit is a big thing, but it's also about caring for these animals. And if you've met a farmer who raises animals, like farm size aside, you know, like these are people with tremendous humanity who love what they do, who love the beings in their care. They don't like suffering. And anyway, suffering is bad for profitability. Like there's no one out there that's like, well, if we just make the hog suffer a little more, like we can make more money. Like that's not happening. Moreover, like we know what happy animals look like. Like that's studied. There's data on that. Like we know what to look for. So for me as a, as a rancher, I know that a chewing cud is a sign of kind of contentment in my sheep and cattle. And these behaviors on factory farms are monitored. These animals have also been selectively bred for these indoor environments. And if you open the door and you let all the chickens and all the turkeys and all the hogs out 
first of all, a lot of them would not go outside. It's like cold out there. It's too hot out there or whatever. But if they did, and I'm not saying this, this is, I really believe this, they would suffer more outside the farm than inside. We have bred these animals to be so reliant on this high level of confinement that that's what they need to live now. Like, like I always think of dairy cows as these kind of like fragile yet like high performing athletes. When you compare them to beef cattle that are like these sort of very resilient, they, I mean, our cattle can be out in like negative 40, negative 50 and they're okay. Like these are tough animals. A dairy cow would absolutely die in that environment. They've been selectively bred for this incredible milk production and they require a lot of intensive care to be able to do that. Lastly, slaughter is highly regulated. And again, you always hear like these animals are just tortured at processing. Like that is just, it's like a mean thing to say. Like the people that work at slaughterhouses are human beings with like grandparents and children. They're not Darth Vader. They don't enjoy animal suffering. And so for all those reasons, slaughter is quick, it's efficient, it's humane, it's highly regulated. Temple Grandin has done tons of work on this. We'll have to do an episode on that too. Do you see what I mean? Like this topic, it just like spawns more episodes. (laughs) But yeah, the claim that animals are widely suffering, they're tortured, blah, blah, blah. Like that really comes from activist websites and they pair these unfounded claims with like some horrible picture they found from a rogue operation in 1975. Like, yes, there are always outliers. There are bad actors in every single industry, but widely we have a very humane system of animal raising and animal care in the U.S. Not to say I don't have some quibbles, which I'll bring up in the next episode, but overall that's the case. (sighs) Wow. Okay. I hope that this episode has given you a lot to chew on. And I'm excited to take the other position in the next episode, the case against factory farms. My hope is to never tell you what to think, but to give you the tools to make up your own mind. And again, we can't change a food system that we don't understand. And so I just want us to have more information. Thank you for your open-mindedness and for joining me today on Choose Wisely. I hope your next meal is delicious and your next conversation nuanced. Follow along on Instagram at Choose Wisely Podcast, and you can shoot us an email at choosewiselypodcast at gmail.com. Cheers.